When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The Slate Culture Gap Fest is brought to you by Carbonite. Keep your digital files safe this year. Protect your photos, music, and documents with automatic cloud backup from Carbonite. Try it free without a credit card at Carbonite.com and use the offer code CULTURE to get two free bonus months if you decide to buy. And by Warby Parker, a new concept in eyewear. Warby Parker makes buying glasses online easy, risk-free, and most of all, enjoyable. Visit warbyparker.com cultural to begin your free home try-on experience today. And by Audible.com, with more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook at audible.com slash culture. The following podcast contains explicit language. McAffin, this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest wearing jeans to the Oscars edition. It's Wednesday, March 2nd, 2016. On today's show, the Oscars, they featured Leo, Spotlight, Lady Gaga, but the story of the night was the acerbic hosting of Chris Rock. We will discuss all of the above. And then small talk. Is this a necessary social lubricant or a conversational scourge? And then finally, Gregory Crutzen is one of the great living fine art photographers in the world. We count ourselves lucky and honored to have spoken to him about his new exhibit at the Gagosian Gallery in downtown New York. The exhibit's called Cathedral of the Pines. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. And of course, uh, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Greetings, Steve. It's nice to have you in the room with us. I can reach out and touch you. <laughs> but please don't. Uh, no, if, it's... if Steve yelps at various moments during the recording, you'll know he's been pinched. It's true. Um, I'm psyched to be here. It's great to see you both. All right. Julia, do we have any business before we... Uh, we have a couple pieces of business, actually. First is that we are doing a live show in New York City on Wednesday, April 6th. That should be a fun show, and we'll have a cocktail hour beforehand. You can find tickets to that at slate.com slash live. So again, New York City, Wednesday, April 6th. Looking forward to it. Also, we have sad tidings for us and glad tidings for some listener out there. Lindsay Albrecht, our wonderful intern, has not taken to heart the discussions and lessons of Steve and Dana, who warn all against PhDdom. She's going to finish her dissertation, and so we are hiring. Wait, I never made that warning. Don't put it on me. <laughs> <laughs> I applaud PhD dissertation finisher. Okay, fine. Anyway, she's going to better herself and her mind in the world. And so we are hiring a new intern. Please send us a resume and a brief note about why you would be a great Culture Gab Fest intern to culturefest at slate.com with internship as the subject line. Don't forget to put internship in the subject line or you will be disqualified. (laughs) (laughs) Julia, let me get that straight. They're going to be disqualified. (laughs) Disqualified. Uh, also on Slate Plus, we will talk about frocks, Oscar frocks. So if you want to hear me, Dana, and of course Steve weigh in on Oscar frocks, stick around for Slate Plus. And you can sign up to be a Slate Plus member at slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, Steve, let's commence. Thank you, Julia. Okay, Dana, let's, um, a lot of storylines here, uh, you know, not least among them is, um, Uh, the hosting of Chris Rock, which we're going to get to and dig into. But let's start banal and talk about the surprise, uh, or was it a surprise, that Spotlight took the big award away from the presumed favorite of The Revenant. Were you surprised? What do you think about it winning the best uh, best picture? 
I was very pleasantly surprised. I mean, that was my, of the of the nominated films, wasn't my favorite film of the year. That was probably Carol. But among the slate of nominated films, Spotlight was my favorite. And also the one that I made, we mentioned this last week, a sort of um, jokey video in favor of plugging for it to win. And uh, so for me, that was a great turnaround. And I think it was for the for the cast and crew of Spotlight as well. One of the, the nicest moments of, of reaction, I think, was the genuine shock and joy that spread over that crowd when their their award was announced. Yeah, as the daughter of Boston Globe journalists, I I uh, emitted a yelp of delight when Spotlight won, and I think I was probably rooting for Spotlight despite my elaborate video touting the Martian to the contrary. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Revenant had this this air of this aura of inevitability about it in the weeks leading up to the to the ceremony, and just the sheer reverse reversal of that inevitability was was mm-hmm. a pleasure in and of itself. The idea that there is such a thing as surprise in those in those voting categories. I think some of the closer Oscar watchers too noted that actually it was really an open race, and that the aura of inevitability around Revenant for Best Picture was mistaken because I think that the, the Oscar stats heads, which is a thing that exists now somewhat ridiculously, but they like to pay attention to which movies win the earlier awards, the Screen Actors Guild Award, the Writers Guild Awards, the Producers Awards, you know, the BAFTAs, I don't know, whatever else they care about, but um, probably not the BAFTAs, maybe the BAFTAs, who knows? Anyway, but Big Short, Spotlight, and Revenant had all taken a couple of those wins. And so some people were congratulating themselves afterwards by saying, this thing was never locked up. How dare you be surprised? But I was surprised. Another pleasurable upset, I thought, was Mark Rylance winning for Best Supporting Actor. As we've talked about on this show, just such a restrained and minimalist performance and such a small role in terms of the actual lines he was given. And and I I was really impressed that the Academy recognized that. I also, I think that Sylvester Stallone winning for Creed would have been an all-around, much as you may love Sly, sort of feel-bad experience because it would have been the one award won Mm -hmm. by Creed. Oh, and that's a movie I would have loved to have seen, not only nominated, but win. I mean, I'm beyond excited and thrilled that that Spotlight won it. But Creed seemed to me the most preposterously slighted movie of the year. Giving it to Rylance and giving it to Spotlight are very similar gestures. I mean, it may be a complete coincidence, but there's a tendency to give it uh, the Best Picture Award maybe to a slightly larger movie or a more consciously directed or less procedural film uh, tendency to give the acting awards to either sentimental favorites or people who do capital A acting. Both Spotlight and Rylance and Bridge of Spies are both understated, subtle. They're not in your face. They're not at all targeted toward award winning. That's certainly a little heartening. Yeah, maybe. I mean, both of those maybe pointed to the fact that the Academy is more heavily weighted towards actors. That's the largest category. And they're both, as you say, movies that, well, the SAG Awards like them that, you know, actors would tend to respond to. Yeah, I was thrilled for Rylance as well. And it's hard to feel too much joy at the defeat of Sylvester Stallone, who's, you know, an appropriately storied man already. Uh, But I do think that voters must have been torn between the desire to at least recognize this great movie in some way and frustration that the only way to recognize it was to recognize, like, the one white performance in it. uh, And to give it to a guy who is in no way an upstart. I mean, I think in some ways... I wonder if the broader conversation around racial equity and racial opportunity and justice, for lack of a more subtle word, uh, and the Oscars somehow paired in with this notion of upstarts and underdogs and, and trying to find a way to really look at all the candidates with open eyes as opposed to with hustle and hype. That's, that's a wild theory. But I mean, another place you might have seen that if you want to carry the underdog theory through is Ex Machina, a movie we all loved. I think, Steve, especially, mm-hmm. you adored that movie, winning Best Visual Effects. I mean, in a year when there were so many gigantic blockbusters competing with it, it was by far the, the lowest budget of any yeah. of those films, and it won. And especially competing against Mad Max, which was such a visually arresting, expensive, um, you know, kind of wildly imaginative film visually and Ex Machina is small. It's a chamber piece. Its visual effects are very integrated into the self-conscious smallness and hushness of the of the movie. I think this ties into a less racialized issue surrounding the Oscars, which is that I think the last three awards have gone to independently produced movies, smaller movies. You know, you don't really have a Titanic, a movie that's gigantic, makes a huge amount of money, is by and large liked or in some cases beloved by critics that's the odds-on favorite to win the award. Um, In a multicultural America and a multi-platform media, are people going to care about the Oscars? They seem to care about them less. 
Are people going to care about the Oscars in five years, 15 years? Any predictions on that? I don't know. I mean, that's something that the Academy is very worried about. And that's, I think, why one of the reasons why they're trying to change their their makeup, right, and, and get a, attract a younger demographic to the actual Academy itself. I think this was the second least watched Oscars mm-hmm. ceremony of all time, right? John Stewart hosted the least watched in, in 2008, I believe it was. But this had lower ratings than any other Oscars except for that one. And there definitely is declining viewership every year. But this award is 88 years old now. It was the 88th Oscars. And I think it stuck around because the, the, for, for as much as they may be mocked and, and derided and, and uh, constantly fretted over, the Oscars continue to have great symbolic value in the industry mm-hmm. and, and almost in the popular imagination as a whole, right? I mean, if somebody wins an Oscar, it's going to be in the first line of their obituary, mm-hmm. right? And I think that will probably continue to be the case as long as there are movies being screened. Yeah, it's hard to game out. It does not yet feel like the movie industry is where the TV industry is in terms of total fragmentation and the abandonment of ratings. But the thing that's been nice about the Oscars, the thing you can say for the Oscars, is that it is an ostensible marker of quality over audience. And Mm -hmm. it's fluctuated over time about how much it's the taste of the Academy aligned with the taste of the box office or willing to reward or recognize the right things. But, you know, it's like a true industry award and that it's the people in the field. And as we've discussed on the show, maybe not the right set of people in the field, but it's, you know, it is and should be working people recognizing the work of their peers. And I think it will always have some connection to movie making and perhaps even more connection to smaller surprising movies now that the big movies are so meritless. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's strong. I can hear the, I can hear the cries of the fanboys. <laughs> but but now that, that so much of movie making is so committed to making movies that fundamentally can't be surprising on some base level because they're so templated, I suspect we might see more surprising victors and that that may actually reinforce the authority of the Oscars as a place that rewards interesting mm-hmm. work. And I think that's why, you know, the Oscars So White conversation, I mean, we had a great conversation a couple of weeks ago with Aisha Harris about it and about how starting the conversation around diversity and representation at the award phase seems way off base. It seems more mm-hmm. important to start it at the, you know, who's making these things, who's greenlighting these things, what kinds of decisions are being made as these things are getting funded and financed and made and produced. And that's the more important way to focus on having a broader range of works recognized. But I'm curious to hear you guys describe how you thought Chris Rock handled the role of taking the Oscar diversity conversation and keeping it present in the show. I thought that Willa Paskin, our TV critic, put it really well in her review for Slate when she noted that his monologue in particular was sort of wild and idiosyncratic. It was very much Rock's perspective. He kept a race front and center throughout the night, but he also you know, basically said, I think completely inaccurately, like the Oscars don't matter. This is a dumb racial problem. Like we never used to protest the Oscars, which isn't true because people used to be, you know, getting lynched and killed, which is a pretty startling way to frame things in the year of Black Lives Matter, but was not just sort of dismissing the complaints and papering things over for the Academy. He was giving his perspective as you know, one of the greatest stand-up comedians alive today and one of the most interesting commentators on race today about how he thinks about diversity at the Oscars and the specificity of his perspective, I I thought in the end was powerful. I thought at, at, the, be- at the beginning I was worried that he was kind of going to try and, like, make it all right, which is not what you think of Chris Rock for. But there were a few jokes early on in the monologue where it felt like he was like, eh, Oscar diversity, mm-hmm. Oscar diversity. Um, that's a classic rock joke, by the way. Uh, and, uh, in the end, I felt like the thing that was striking about the night was that it seems so singularly the product of his voice and his mind and itself a representation of how interesting the world can be when you let and encourage different voices to have that, have a big platform. And so I started out nervous for him and came away impressed, even if all of the bits didn't land. But I, but I'm curious what you guys thought of, of how that worked. On the whole, I think he did a stunning job and made it, to me, one of the most interesting ceremonies I've watched in a long time. I mean, I I didn't feel that usual. Obviously, it's too long. Obviously, there are parts that are deadening and and cheesy, and we can get to those. But I think because it was a very relevant year for him to host and because, as you say, he he didn't just get it over with and dismissed at the beginning, but sort of kept it as a reemerging theme throughout the ceremony, it made it one of the mm-hmm. one of the most riveting Oscars I've seen. I do think that there was a big lapse in taste in that sketch with the three Asian kids that came it's, up on stage. grotesque, right? And so bizarre in a year when people are attempting to be 
self-conscious about the issue of race. Why is that suddenly in bounds? Uh, that was preposterous. But backtracking a little bit, uh, I totally agree, Julia. I think, well, first of all, just the incredible serendipity of the year in which you know, the Oscars are idiotic on the notion of who's nominated, you know, vis-a-vis the issue of race. You have the, maybe the greatest black stand-up comedian of his generation. You know, him and Dave Chappelle, you know, are, are, are probably the only two in that conversation. You have him hosting. And secondly, you never doubted that he wrote every single one of those jokes. I mean, those jokes were in his voice. Some of them, I think, were almost alarming to the audience. Um, they landed so tightly. I, you know, he's I, to my mind, he's always been a comedian who is way more nuanced than his delivery would lead you to believe. And he likes to roam around something in order to try to see it in 360, which like as the quote unquote angry, angry black comedian, I think people sometimes maybe miss that in his, his work. Um, he's also looking for a way to excuse himself a little bit for accepting the hosting gig in a year when totally meritorious black work was um criminally neglected. I think he's also trying to put in perspective the relative horror of cultural slights next to lynching. And he does mention, I mean, there's an incredibly barbed joke about, you know, black movie patrons being shot on the way, the in memoriam segment of the Oscars this year will be of black patrons shot on their way to seeing a movie. And his closing words of the yeah. night were uh, Black Lives Matter and the, the final song was Fight the Power. Fight the power. I mean, yeah. And so, I have to say that that Fight the Power ending to me felt pretty ironically, I don't know, but it felt pretty hypocritical. I mean, if there's one place where the power is not being fought, it's mm-hmm. the Academy Awards. But it alludes to, I agree with you, most people thought that was OTT, but I I loved... Um, What's I, OTT? Is that over the top? <laughs> it is. <laughs> I just... I almost wanted to pause for you to grab the two by four. Uh, you were slow. Sorry. You, you got it. I'll get it back. I'll get it back. <laughs> uh, Julia, it's an industry term. Um, uh, what I, the one thing I liked about it is it is obviously the theme music for maybe the greatest work of black cinema this country's ever produced. I mean, it really calls to mind, you know, you do the right thing. Yeah, I mean, that that was just what was so great about it. He kept it present. He kept it very specific to his own view. And I, I thought it was a really fascinating night of television and a, and a really great serendipity that Rock happened to be the one who was hosting. And then I guess the other great underrepresented voice at the Oscars is uh, women who are not dressed to the nines. There there was a glorious stretch in the middle when Mad Max, which as our listeners all know, we all uh, didn't totally thrill to, but certainly the technical visual mastery and specificity and appeal of it, we all admired. And it rightly, I think, won just like production a, design, a jillion and, yeah. production awards in the middle, including one for costume design, beating out Sandy Powell's fabulous swishing, elegantly buttoned stoles for Kate Blanchett and all the other glorious costumes, which rah-rah Jenny Beaven. And then she walked up to the stage in this fucking awesome getup that was just like some black jeans or pants and a jacket and then seemingly like a jacket over her jacket that had a Martin Joe like rhinestone skull on the back of it and then just like kind of a scarf. I loved it. Yeah, she looked like she was waiting online to see a movie, not accepting an Academy Award for designing the clothes for one. I loved it. I always love what the costume designers wear because I think there's two ways of being a costume designer. One is to be extravagant in your garb. But remember there was one year that the costume designer wore like a dress that she'd stitched together out of Amex Mm. gold cards or whatever. Like they can either make a costume statement with their costume. As Sandy Powell did. As, or they sometimes just like abdicate mm-hmm. from from costume right. dumb. Like well, it is their expertise that they put elsewhere sure. and not on themselves. And I, it is so rare that you see anything surprising in the sartorial choices of people at the Oscars anymore. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in plus. But I loved it. And I loved that as a different way of being a woman at the Oscars. I just thought it was great. Yeah, me too. The cobbler's child is never shod, right? Yeah. Um, and What um, about the reaction shot exactly. of all the men on the all glaring? We have to talk t- about that. Talk about another bizarre reverse serendipity at the current Oscars. She happens to walk by and the camera follows her, follows her as she's doing it. A row of A-list men who kind of give her this Ice cold glare. Interpret it for me. I uh, I overinterpreted it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a striking image, and we had a we had a piece on Slate just noting the power of watching this 
kind of woman not representing Oscar womanliness and then a bunch of men glaring at her. I will say from home, even someone who's written about costume design and cares about it and sort of knows that there are these two sartorial styles of being a costume designer and that you might see a costume designer who's just wearing a big fuck you outfit. I'm sure if there was a camera on my face, I would have been like, huh? Like, what? (laughs) Like, made a very confused and uh, perhaps not, like, radiating feminist joy immediately face for, like, two to eight seconds before I was like, yeah, right on, and started clapping. Also, she walked a long time. Also, they hadn't gotten to see her until she walked by. Like, I'm not sure you can really hang up those particular men as horrible chauvinist pigs for the way in which their faces were captured on screen. However, I loved the general... I mean, you did see, I think, one of the women in the row in front of them who's not in the vine that circulated famously. I just saw her give this, like, amazing, just unmistakable up-and-down glance when she walked by Mm -hmm. where you just had this image of, like, the Hollywood glamour machine clocking this normal person looking Mm -hmm. like a normal person. And it made you think of another mode of being not well-represented in Hollywood. Oh, Absolutely. All right. Well, it was the 88th Oscars. They were hosted by Chris Rock with quite a bit of a plum and vinegar. Come let us know what you thought of them, who won, who didn't win, how they were hosted, who they excluded, who they included, who got ice cold glares. Uh, bring it to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest, and we'll start a row there over it, no doubt. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we got? The Slate Culture Gab Fest is sponsored this week by Carbonite. How much of your life is on your computer? Slate just published a piece this week actually arguing that your whole mind is on your phone (laughs) by a philosopher and that that's why the Apple FBI case is so complicated because your phone is your brain. Uh, Steve just upgraded his brain from a four to a six. So watch out, world. (laughs) In any event, what if your digital files vanished forever? This would be all my photos of my children, the cute photo I just showed you guys of the boys at the museum. This is talk about serendipity. I just, the reason I got a new phone is I just lost my old phone to having dropped it in a kitchen sink full of water. Um, It was very depressing because photographs of my kids going back years are on that phone. And did I cloud them? Did I take care of it? Did I carbonite them? No. But I just got an email not a half an hour ago saying that the bag of rice worked. Oh. Yeah. So... All right. So the bag of rice has saved Steve's self-memory family and, I don't know, ethereal soul, basically, <laughs> off of his phone. Uh, but but you can't pin your hopes on a bag of rice. Don't count on a bag of rice. With Carbonite Cloud Backup, your photos, music documents, and other files are backed up automatically to the cloud. More than 1.5 million home and small business customers trust Carbonite. So start your free trial today at Carbonite.com. No credit card required. And use offer code CULTURE to get two free bonus months if you decide to buy. That's Carbonite.com. Offer code CULTURE. All right, Steve. What's next? Thanks, Julia. Okay, moving on. Why can't we replace small talk with big talk and ask each other profound questions right from the start? So asked a writer named Tim Boomer in the New York Times, to which Slate's own Ruth Graham replied, small talk saves us from forced intimacies, but not only does Boomer's approach sound exhausting, like something dreamed up by that guy in your freshman philosophy class, it's just plain wrong. Small talk is not wasted talk. It's a social lubricant as essential as wine and laughter that allows strangers to make crucial first connections across demographic lines. It's far from meaningless. People are rebelling against it today as a misguided dismissal of social graces that seem old-fashioned, boring, or wasteful, but in fact, we've never needed such graces more. Okay, we got two. We got a think-piece death match going here, Dana. Which side of this argument are you going to take? Oh, I think I, you have to take Ruth's side. I mean, if you read that that Tim Boomer editorial, it's just it's impossible to come away a wanting to have any kind of conversation with Tim Boomer, big or small, <laughs> and b just just buying his his argument, which is I guess somehow that yeah you've got to somehow springboard immediately into huge weighty questions about what's the place that's most inspired you in life or what were some of his what big work questions? are you most passionate about right like don't ask someone about their job right that's this is a, a classic piece of conversation advice is that you don't ask people about their job at any point during a getting to know you conversation, which to me just seems like how much of our lives do we spend engaged in our job? What What is there left to ask about? I guess then you ask, how many brothers and sisters do you have? I don't know. I'm on Ruth's side, and I wish that I were better at small talk. I agree that it's a, it's a wonderful art to cultivate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I completely agree with Dana. It's I, I think that there is a mysterious alchemy to when a conversation with a stranger goes and when it doesn't. It's kind of like you're like trying to start a car or get a fire going or something. And there's 
um, I, I do not feel particularly aware of or in control of my gambits. Sometimes it goes and sometimes it doesn't. I feel like sometimes I'm okay at it, sometimes I'm not. I come from a family of really good small talkers. My grandmother was, I think I've talked about her on the show before, but my mom's mom was just amazingly able to start a conversation with anybody and make the guy on the bus bench or the woman at the rental car place or the you know little old lady on the phone from the telco like an intimate very quickly, but not by starting out with some kind of ultimatum that they weren't going to have small talk and they were going to go straight to the lady's divorce. She would get there really fast by being deeply human in these kind of rote interactions and by never losing sight of the fact that there's a human on the other end of the line, a real person. Um, And I feel like my greatest reservation about living in New York for so long is that I think sometimes you're so overwhelmed by the sheer mass of humanity that I like shut off to you you can't you if you try to remain aware of every human you encounter all the time in their full humanity you like empathy drains out of all your pores and you're you're drenched but I feel like sometimes those blinders that you have to put up in New York to survive end up staying up in -hmm. moments where you wish they would come down a little bit so you're telling me you are not the angel in wings of desire Wait, I've never seen that movie. <laughs> Isn't that, it doesn't, is it, I'm now confusing it in my head with the video for the movie with Bono, but doesn't it involve someone, an angel coming into Berlin? And I just like, was picturing Helena vo- Bottom Carter in Wings of the Dove and got really confused. <laughs> I'm like, I'm in a gondola, but I'm really good at small talk. Wrong movie. No, but it's it's like a total, a total. Yeah, it's sort of the angel can hear everyone's yeah, everyone, internal, internal dialogue yeah. at once. Mm. Maybe you are and you just don't know it. Um, no, I think that the piece makes a fundamental error in assigning big and small as appropriate adjectives to these ways of speaking because talk with someone that you don't already know well, its meaning derives not from the content of what's being said. You know, It's really so little, Dana, about the actual content of what someone is saying about the weather or you know, the party that you happen to be at or the crudite or whatever. That doesn't matter. You don't care about that. Of course you don't care about that. You're looking, you're picking up on how a person speaks and how they carry themselves, and then you are testing that. And a conversation is a fundamentally, it's like the most fundamentally mutual thing two human beings can do, almost. And it's, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but there's something so intrusive about forcing upon someone else a large subject that you uh, abridge the very essence of talking to someone. It's not. It's very unmutual mm-hmm. to not work your way there organically. Yeah, to toss someone into it. Into yeah. a canyon. Well, there's this linguistic term that Ruth Graham uses, phatic conversation, P-H-A-T-I-C, that she attributes to a, a, a thinker named Malinowski. I always thought of it as a Roman Jacobson category, but maybe he, oh, he, me too. he, me too. he inherited yeah. it from earlier. <laughs> but the idea of phatic conversation... <laughs> Do you right. think I only happen to have a mouthful of water, but that doesn't mean I'm going to let you pass over that moment. <laughs> you think of it as a what category? Roman Jacobson, the structuralist philosopher. <laughs> I say to the guy who's the most philosophical in the room. Oh, dear. Um, now I've lost track of what I was talking about. Oh, fatic conversation. You, right, were, you were making small talk about Roman Jacobson. <laughs> <laughs> Is that your gambit at a party, Dana? But it just it means placeholder conversation, right? Conversation that is about the fact that we're having a conversation, about the fact that we're here together exchanging some some sort of communication. And so the question, I guess, is, is do you dismiss that? Do you consider it a lower rung of communication? Or, you know, do you consider it sort of on an equal plane to uh, to whatever deep, deep thinking Tim Boomer wants you to do? And, uh, and it, the mere fact that emphatic conversation is essentially the I mean, in every culture and language, I imagine there is some equivalent of what's up? Not much, right? There's that moment that you see your neighbor watering mm-hmm. the grass and you say something inoffensive and they say something inoffensive back. And that is what, it's almost like a handshake. It's sort of what establishes the safety of the ground for mm-hmm. the conversation to begin. I was also thinking of birds displaying, like the, the Ruth has a lovely point in her essay that in some ways small talk is like a sonnet. There's a set of constraints and limits uh, and within those, you express yourself and convey some of your selfness because of the constraints. And it it felt to me like almost the custom or ritual of like, oh, I'm a bird and I meet another bird and I like wiggle my neck a certain way and the other bird wiggles his neck a certain way. And we, you know, we like learn about each other from our neck wiggles. Like you have sort of a boring conversation and hopefully it becomes unboring because you, you find a thread or a seam that you can work into something more unusual. But just the way of going about 
that conversation reveals so much about who you're talking to. Mm -hmm. I do remember the discovery. So before I worked at Slate, I worked at Sports Illustrated Women briefly, which was a magazine that existed. And that coincided with the Patriots winning their first Super Bowl, and the um, it was in the run up to the Red Sox's initial o three o four World Series runs, and so I was working on sports, learning a lot about sports, and following sports as a fan in a really avid way that I never had before. And I was actually playing on this like rec hockey team. I basically had two years where I was like a fake jock sports fan. And it was astonishing to me how much small talk being a sports fan opened up. The mm-hmm. conversations I could have with bartenders and cab drivers, just the male currency of like being able to exchange views about Teddy Bruschi or whatever the fuck were revelatory. Like I felt like I felt like a, a gender swap or something. It felt like I'd opened the door to the cigar smoke filled room because it broadened the horizon upon which you could have meaningless conversation in this way that felt like it gave you entree into connection with all kinds of people that I had not had common ground with before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's a perfect example of what, well, when men talk about sports, there are a couple of different ways to do it. One is to keep the conversation entirely unintimate and therefore comfortable and somewhat screened. But because it's a way also of studying a new acquaintance's mind, right? You're talking about something that a lot of us think about. Do you think about it in an interesting or unusual way? Are you going to say something unexpected about the Mets, which I you know, haven't really thought of before? I mean, you're sort of covertly learning how another person thinks. And the best way to do that is to bat around a little meaningless toy. It's much better than pseudo profundity. Can I ask you guys a personal question? A big question. <laughs> you going big? Okay. Going big. Do you guys feel that doing this show for eight years has changed your conversational style, like at a cocktail party? Like this is all a performed conversation. Sorry, listeners, but you know we're having a real conversation. But we you have to be a little self-aware. We're a little heightened. We try and m- mention the first and last names of the people we talk about and add the little explanatory clause where we say so and so, the director of such and such, which you wouldn't necessarily do. You think it's changed the way you talk out in the wild? You know what though? I, for me, it's like the cobbler's kid is never shod. I am the world's worst fucking conversationalist when I'm around people I don't know. It's like, I can't, I wish I could flip a switch and go into this mode. And I tried it the other night and I started kind of doing a David Bowie riff and I looked around and every face around me had gone completely dead. So it's like, I don't, I I don't know. I guess maybe I, maybe I, Dana, I even let my conversational abilities go even worse because I know I'm cobbling some pretty okay shoes at the office. Yeah, I don't think it's I don't think it's really affected in any way because I mean now we're going to all tear up, but this is a safe space. <laughs> this is you know this is a place where I feel like I can experiment with ideas or say something dumb or say something wrong, and you know that it, it'll all come out in the wash somehow. And I don't think it's given me extra courage to do to make those conversational faux pas in social situations. Dana, look at my face. This is me not tearing up. <laughs> That's what that looks like. No, I feel unsafe <laughs> on my left side only. There's nothing safe about this I'm, case. I'm go back to Gant, Steve. I'm full of dewy tears over here. I'm crying inside. <sighs> All right. Well, the piece is called In Defense of Small Talk. It's on Slate.com. It's by Ruth Graham, a regular and um, highly prized contributor to the publication. Check it out and come to Facebook.com slash Culture Fest. Tell us how you make small talk. Do you make small talk? Uh, do you avoid it? And do you occasionally throw the big talk bomb into the middle of a uh, parlay? All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor. Julia Turner, what, what do you got? The Slate Culture Gap Fest is also sponsored this week by Warby Parker. Warby Parker brings you a new concept in eyewear, contemporary eyeglasses that are both fashion forward and extremely affordable. Anyone who has ever bought glasses the old-fashioned way knows that it is a surefire way to write a check for an exorbitant amount of money you didn't think it was possible to pay for anything. But Warby Parker offers prescription glasses starting at $95, including the lenses. Standard glasses, reading glasses, sunglasses. Warby Parker has them all, and they make buying glasses online easy, risk-free. And the many ways in which they are risk-free, the official way is that with the home try-on program, you can order five pairs of glasses to be shipped directly to you to test out, and then you send the ones you don't want back. But there's another way in which having Warby Parker glasses diminishes your risk 
Anne, will you tell us about it? Yeah, so I have a tendency to lose my glasses. So with Warby Parker, I was able to buy three pairs. For <laughs> less I... than the price of a normal one, probably. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I bought three pairs. And then just the other day, I was like, whatever happened to that one pair? Hmm, okay, well, now I've got another pair. So <laughs> I think the only bad thing is that they were so cheap that my mom decided she wanted to buy matching pair. So, But that's also good because then I can buy ones that don't match with my mom. So thanks, Warby Parker. <laughs> Uh, awesome. Uh, Warby Parker also offers a wide range of prescription op- options, which is useful to me because my glasses, uh, where they made the old-fashioned way, are insanely thick. But Warby Parker offers ultra-thin, high-index lenses, which are the kind that you need if your prescription is getting up towards a negative 7.5, as mine is. So visit warbyparker.com cultural to begin your free home try-on experience today. All right, Steve. Next, we have a field trip, right? We do indeed. All right, moving on. A Gregory Crutzen photograph is a journey deep into the American uncanny. His pictures are meticulously staged, shot on location, and require the forethought, the crew, and the budget of an independent film. The result is work that is somehow both Renaissance painterly and Polaroid snapshot, the beautiful and perturbing child of Diane Arbus, Edward Hopper, and the Spielberg of Close Encounters. Crutzen is one of the great fine art photographers going in the world today, and we are honored to be meeting him at the Gagosian Gallery to discuss his new show, Cathedral of the Pines. So we all met him there at the gallery, and here's, uh, here's what resulted. Okay, so we're here at the Gagosian Gallery on the far west side of uh, lower Manhattan in Chelsea, and we're honored to be joined by the photographer Gregory Crudson. Gregory, thank you so much for coming on to the show to talk about your work. It's my great pleasure. Gregory, expanding a little bit on the introduction, uh, I'd love to begin by talking about the process by which you make your photographs, because I think some of our listeners who may not be familiar with your work are going to be fascinated to hear just what goes into creating one of your works. Well, I think at the center of it, I consider myself a storyteller, and photographs, unlike movies or other narrative forms, are very limited in terms of the story you could tell. So I attempt to tell my particular story through light and color. Um, so I go through enormous amount of energies to try to make the most beautiful and mysterious picture I can using a team, a crew that come out of movies to uh, make these um, moments, these moments that kind of hover between fiction and reality. Mm-hmm. So I love that you describe the work as beautiful and mysterious, which it certainly is. Each picture in this exhibition seems to suggest a whole set of questions about like what the hell is going on here, basically. Mm-hmm. Like for, In front of most of these pictures, you could stand there and be like, what, what are these people doing? What just happened? What is about to happen? So you do feel situated in a, in a, in a potential narrative. Are you trying to capture a moment that could suggest many different potential narratives, or do you have a more specific one in mind when you're trying to evoke that mystery? I'm entirely invested in the single moment, so um, I honestly don't know what happened before or after each of the single images. And for me, it's necessary that the picture remains a mystery to even myself. I just will have an image that will flash across my mind, usually through location scouting or swimming. Those are the two ways <laughs> pictures come to me. And then um, I sort of move forward to try to make that image put, make that image visible in the world. But I want the ultimate meaning to remain elusive, to always remain a question mark. And I want this viewer to bring their own particular stories to the pictures. You mentioned location scouting, and I wanted to ask you about the logistics of how that happens. For example, this exhibit is called Cathedral in the Pines, Cathedral of the Pines, and that's a real place, but you didn't know when you started scouting this location that such a place existed. It was more that you were looking for the right kind of forest or the right kind of light, and then you found Cathedral of the Pines? Well, this particular body of work came out of very sort of um, a dark period in my life that uh, I went through a very difficult divorce and moved out of New York and moved into a church 
So that's a starting point. And in an attempt to try to kind of reconnect myself uh, to myself and to the world, I think, I began doing these sort of, um, well, walks, religiously walking up the Appalachian Trail and doing these long-distance swims in Beckett. And I didn't work for, like, I didn't make pictures for two years, so there's a very long, dormant period. And I think that process, I was unconscious of it at the time, but I think it was an attempt to heal and to reconnect my work. And it was in the winter when I was cross-country skiing miles away from civilization that I wandered into a, a pine forest and had a kind of moment of revelation. And I saw in my mind's eye the entire, entire body of work. Okay, well, why don't we all rise and uh, go and uh, look at a couple of uh, photographs in particular. Um, Gregory, we're in front of one of the many, you know, totally arresting photographs in the, uh, in the exhibit. Uh, I don't see a title card next to it. Can you describe it? Give us a title and tell us a little bit about... Yeah, uh, this is, by the way, this is the first time I ever I've have titles for the pictures, and they're very kind of nondescript titles, and so this one's called Woman at Sink. And this one, as many of the pictures... There's a really important distinction between interior and exterior space. We did this group of pictures uh, during winter, obviously, so the snow really plays in. And there's this lone figure at the sink uh, in a moment of contemplation. There's a suggestion of she's holding a pair of underwear and there's a suggestion of blood in the water. This is an example of a picture where we deliberately lit from the exterior in. So just out of camera range, this is an enormous lighting rig that with lots of different bounces to get that beautiful light on, on her. Dana and I had a similar response to this piece, which is the astonishing effect of that light coming in and how it makes her look both hyper-real and photographic and painterly. I mean, she really looks like a hyper-real painting, almost more than a photographed figure. I mean, she's in relief because of the powerful, presumably white light coming in through the window. In this entire body of work, the painting, the, I wanted them to refer more t to paintings than movies, in fact. And I think that's why there's a kind of quieter tone to the pictures generally. I do want my figures to feel kind of there but not there. And I want them to feel almost like, slightly like mannequins. Or, and I really, in this body of work, want to emphasize flesh. Like, if you notice going through the show, there's a lot of nude bodies, and there's a lot of, whenever they're wearing clothes, it's usually, like, underwear or nightgowns. Or, um, and that's all in an effort to create a kind of, again, this intimacy and vulnerability. One thing that's striking about this picture is we're seeing this interior of the woman at the sink, and then out the window we see this snow-covered... Uh, a lawn and a tree and a, some kind of garage or outbuilding or house next door. I'm curious about logistics and light here. On the light question, there is this quality of being inside on a snowy day when it gets late where there's a funny glare off the snow and you sort of have the moment where you realize you haven't turned the lights on yet, but maybe you should. With the artificial light here, do you have a sense when you're working with that that you're trying to create or heighten a natural light situation, or is the point for it to be otherworldly and unearthly and unrelated to uh, natural lighting situations one might find oneself in? I think it's both, really. But like in the end, I want to create a world that feels believable and that feels like you could be drawn into even when it feels um, heightened or kind of saturated in one way or another. 
I did have some rules on these winter pictures, never ever to light the snow. So that was a, a general rule that we would only use lights in the interior spaces. And that leads me to my logistical question, which is uh, a 15-person crew is still a decently big crew. Uh, there's no footprints in that snow, and there's like a really beautifully shoveled or melted line on the edge of that outbuilding where there is no snow. Did you guys plan that little detail? Well, the other rule, so the first rule is no light on the snow. The second rule is no one ever walk on the snow unless <laughs> told to. So, like, we literally had, like, you know, um, ropes outside where no one could walk on the snow. And the other rule is never bump the camera because once the camera frames the scene, we shoot many, many, many stills, and then that's how we sort of combine them later in post-production. So this is like uh, a composite of five or six different images that were taken over a course of an hour. That's interesting. All right, can we all walk over and take a look at the photo I've chosen to talk about? Oh, good. I'm excited that Dana picked this one. I'm glad not one of you hogged it, because I have a lot of questions about this one. So can you tell us uh, the, the name and the sort of subject of this one? It's this woman in living room. So I'll try to describe this one and also why I chose it. I think what, what drew me to it is that I think it's one of the most cinematic and that suggests the most possible narrative somehow. Uh, the subject is a woman sitting apparently in front of a television watching it. You can't see what's on the screen. And the interior she's in, and this is what fascinates me about it, has all these kind of openings within it. We see her through the threshold of a doorway. Then behind her is a window into which you look into the forest. Off to the left-hand side is a staircase going up into an unseen space. And then a kitchen that leads off onto another unseen space. It just it really struck me that this, this photograph is about so many things besides its subject. In some ways, the woman watching television and whatever she's watching is the least intriguing portion. It's, it's all the, the suggested spaces off to the sides that we want to know about. Yeah, I mean, I, that light was very intentional, kind of haunting, blue light that makes her skin feel almost corpse-like. And then I love the little details on the tabletop. It's, uh, well, as always, I uh, um, will always, almost always, like I have a certain kind of iconography in terms of tabletop objects, but I always seem to have like half, um, like a glass half filled with water, maybe some liquor of some kind, cigarettes, big fan of old remote controls, videotapes, all these sort of objects, uh, thread and needle, all these objects are sort of suggesting some sense of time and place and activity uh, without kind of tipping the scale too much. That brings up another question I had about not just this photo, but the whole, the whole show, which seems to, in a way, not, not take place, these scenes in the 21st century. We don't see any computers or phones or modern technology. We see, for example, in this picture and others, people watching VHS tapes. And there's something of a suggestion that you're... you're you're setting these scenes in the past, and I'm wondering why you chose to do that. Yeah, so that, I mean, that's very true with all of the iconography and the pictures and the exteriors and the interiors and the cars I use. And the point is to try to make the pictures feel outside of time in a certain way. They're not meant in any way to be like a period piece, you know, uh, refer specifically to one particular time. It's supposed to feel like all vaguely familiar and ordinary and nondescript is the word we use on set a lot. Like, everything has to feel incredibly ordinary and aged down. So we spend a lot of time, like, finding the right wardrobe and the right objects. And we do spend a lot of time, like, aging these things down and making them old and kind of dirty and musky. Shall we go to the painting I was hoping to discuss? Photograph, by the way. <laughs> but thank you. <laughs> so I was very struck by this photograph, which 
uh, is an exterior that shows a perfectly snowed over, crusted, clotted, snowy driveway, a red Jeep, maybe like a police Jeep, it has police lights on top of it, uh, with a woman sitting in the passenger side looking like she's wearing a negligee or tank top or camisole or some kind of outfit that's uh, something inappropriate for the weather with the driver's side door open as though she's waiting for the driver to arrive. Then we see to the left a house also with the door open, so maybe that's where the driver's coming from, and we see a, a male figure at a sink, and the, the both figures, despite being we're seeing them from the exterior in two different interiors, are lit in this glowing, radiant way. So I was curious, what's this photograph called, and how did it come together? This picture is called Woman in Part Car. And firstly, the man is actually in, sit, standing in the same kitchen and in the same position as the woman in sink. So it's like a reverse angle of that. Uh, so we're in the same location. And that's something I've done a lot in these pictures, where I use same location in different ways. And I think that's becomes important in terms of the general sense of place in the pictures. And then the woman who's in the car, coincidentally, was in the, in the picture that we just looked at, in the woman in the living room. So it's the same subject that she reoccurs twice. It's not meant to be in sort of part of any master narrative. But I think it is significant in one way or another. It's like a certain type that I'm interested in. In this picture, we had to actually produce all the snow on the road because there was no, no snow on the road. And to me, the, you're right. Like I'm really interested in picturing the figures behind glass so they're separated in their own world, separated but connected in, in some way. And, and then the use of the fire vehicle was a very last moment thing because we were working with the fire department on another picture where the firemen appear through a window. And I, lo I loved his car. So <laughs> I want, I th at the very last moment, asked him to, to use the car. And, and I do think it creates a kind of odd sense of like, creates a question about why is she there and what just happened. And, creates a slight sense of urgency. This one, to me, has the most heightened contrast between the more natural-seeming exterior light and the jewel box interior mm -hmm. light, and there's something that stopped me and made me keep looking at it. And I think, in particular, it's the two, the two open doors between the figures and the fact that they're, they're in these pristine artificial seeming spaces and then there's this kind of frosty cold opening between them that's like a connection that feels that gives you the shivers and I, 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 I just couldn't stop thinking about it. This is something I do quite a bit is having doors open particularly in cars and I wasn't even quite conscious of it early on but I think that for me it's it's a kind of emblematic of the kind of narrative that I want to create that's like between one place and another. So it's like in between places. Uh, you're not there, here or there. You're in transition. And I think the open door suggests that. And as you were saying, there's also a sense of, of kind of urgency and maybe menace about this transition. This is the first photo that we've looked at together that has two figures in it, not just one. Right. And whatever relationship is being implied by their gazes, and we didn't really talk about their gazes, but they both are not looking at each other, sort of are looking off into space and seem to be in a state of despair. Of the photos we've looked at, I think this is the one that most suggests something that's about to happen, right? This, this car needs to get moving in its emergency vehicle. The door is open. It's a cold day. The woman is waiting for the man. It's impossible to look at this one and not think, they've got to get out of there. Or maybe it just happened. That's the other option. Right? It could be, it could be backwards or forwards in time. I imagined him washing his hands. That was my only instruction to him. So cleansing in some way. Uh, Gregory Dana pointed out that the photograph we just looked at had two figures in it. They're not looking at one another nor acknowledging one another. This is common in a lot of your work, especially in this exhibit. 
I wonder if you could relate this possibly to your a curiosity of your childhood, which is that your father was a psychoanalyst, and it's, there was a documentary about you that I highly recommend in which this is discussed, and you discussed the effect of having your father working at home in the basement or subgrade office of the building that you're growing up in and being very curious about what's happening behind that door. And it seems to me there's a kind of non-dialogue between largely unconscious people in a lot of your work, which can describe psychoanalysis, especially when it's not going quite right. Talk a little bit about maybe your father's influence on your work. Yeah, well, there is a story I tell that my father had the office in the basement of our brownstone um, in Park Slope. And I have the early memory of attempting to listen um, putting my ear to the floorboards and imagining what I thought I heard and too young to know exactly what was happening below our living room floor, but old enough to know that whatever was occurring was secret and mysterious. And I, I do feel that that like, was an aesthetic awakening in a certain way, and I think that theme of um, surfaces and above and below and, and through is a motif that runs through all of, all of my pictures in one way or another. And the other thing that I've become more aware of, I think, in this particular body of work is that in these pictures that there are very intimate, very private moments, but photographed in a kind of distanced or more objective way. And I think that tension between intimacy and distance maybe recalls a lesson learned from my father because like secret things were private things were discussed in those sessions but obviously in a very formal way so I think his influence definitely runs through all of my pictures and maybe particularly these pictures well Gregory Crutzen thank you so much for coming on the show this was an immense pleasure for all of us for walking us through the work. I should say the exhibit's up through, I think, March 12th. It's been extended. It's been extended. It's at the Gagosian Gallery in New York City. If you can come and see it, you absolutely should. But if not, there is an abundance of Gregory's work online. Check it out there. Uh, and we'll, we'll link to work um, on our show page and uh, hopefully highlight a couple of the photographs that we talked about. There's also a, a wonderful documentary about Gregory called Brief Encounters. It's available on Amazon. Check it out. All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other other sponsor, Julia Turner, what do we have? The Slate Culture Gabfest is also sponsored this week by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash culture and choose from over 180,000 audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. Audible, I think a lot of our listeners know because they've been a longtime sponsor and we've talked many times over the years about the great uh, books that they publish and the amazing things to listen to that you can find there. Uh, but Audible is not just books anymore. Their content includes programs from leading audiobook publishers, but also broadcasters, entertainers, magazine and newspaper publishers, and business information providers. But of course, they also have good old books. Steve, what are you reading these days? Well, you know, I, I don't know if you know this, but I just finished writing a book of my own. Oh, mm. congratulations. Yeah. And uh, during the time that I uh, did that, which I think totals to 15 years, I set aside. I love that no one laughs because it really is so close to not being a joke. Oh, my God. All right. Anyway, so uh, during that time, I didn't read a single work of fiction, I think. And it may actually be true that I didn't read any fiction at all. And so there's a pile on my bedside table, just rando. I reached out and grabbed it. I started with The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt. I loved that when I read it last year. Three T's. You endorsed it, I believe. Yeah, maybe. Mm -hmm. I like it very much so far. Uh, I'm not super far in, but I'm digging it. And there is an audio book of it read by David Pitu. This, Julia, I think you'll agree with me on this. This is a book ideally suited to being well read. Yes, it is. It is. The writing is vivid and crisp, but not ostentatious or ornate, and it's a plotty book. Like, mm, that's the thing yeah. I didn't really appreciate. It's kind of a pop boiler, but it's also full of interesting ideas. Yeah, totally agree. So, get a free audiobook of your choice, The Goldfinch, or something else, and a 30-day trial today at audible.com slash culture. All right, well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana Stevens. What do you have? 
I'm going to endorse something that's short and sweet and visual and uh, and really, really cool. It's a, it's a web page that I found via the magnificent Twitter feed of uh, Pour Me Coffee, who's an anonymous tweeter that probably, if you're on Twitter, you already follow. But if not, follow Pour Me Coffee because everything he or she posts is fascinating and cool. And this particular fascinating, cool thing is a page from a site called Baba Mail. Horrible name for a site, by the way. But it's this series of uh, 19 photographs of caterpillars before and after their transformation into butterflies, and it is so unbelievably cool. Did you happen to see this, Julia? I know no. you're, you're a Pour Me Coffee fan, right? I do like Pour Me Coffee, but no, I haven't seen that. It was something that Pour Me Coffee, he or she, posted yesterday, and uh, and it's, yeah, it's it's the way the caterpillars look in the first place, in some, in some cases, is more stunning than the butterflies they turn into, but it's always completely unsuspected. And the caterpillars themselves are, they're just like Dr. Seuss creations. You can't believe they exist in the world. One of them's kind of transparent and jelly-like with sort of pink dots all along the top of his back. Um, some of them sort of have strange protrusions growing off of them that look like stalactites and stalagmites. They're all kinds of insane colors. And then when you click on them, it shows the butterfly they transform into, which looks always incredibly beautiful and colorful in a completely different way. So it's really mesmerizing. I showed it to my daughter and we couldn't stop switching back and forth and trying to decide whether we liked the caterpillar version or the butterfly version better of each species. We'll put a link to that on our show page. And uh, I guess part of that endorsement would also be follow Pour Me Coffee on Twitter. Mm, That's a fantastic endorsement. I feel like my children will enjoy looking at that. I'm excited about that. Yeah, me too. Julia Turner, what do you got? I've got two TV suggestions today. One is slightly inspired by our Esprit d'Escalier segment on Slate Plus last week, where we went back and revisited subjects we talked about in the last six months or so uh, and ascertained whether we still felt as enraptured or disillusioned as we had when we initially discussed those topics. Uh, And a listener followed up to ask about Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which we all cavelled over. This is the mental illness musical drama, which is on the CW and stars Rachel Bloom. I am definitely still watching that show. In fact, that show has become my TiVo first watch. Like, it is the thing that I hope is on the TiVo that I most want to follow. It's still super uneven, and the gender and mental health politics of it are not impeccable. But it's so original and so full of vim, and the plot is not super easy to track. It's still unclear where it's going, in part because maybe she really is a crazy ex-girlfriend. But the whole thing is very candy-colored and winning at the same time. I love it. So definitely, if you were intrigued by that initial recommendation but haven't yet checked it out, I can attest that it holds up. I think that show is still worth people's attention and time. And then also, Petter Call Saul is back. Yes. I love the sigh of joy and excitement that just passed across both Dana and Steve's faces. It was nice to see them simultaneously. The show is so good. I think this show might end up being better than Breaking Bad. That seems crazy because it's like quieter and subtler and weirder and sadder, but it's like the chiaroscuro, high contrast, good, evil, black, white of Breaking Bad is getting reduced down here into all of these subtler, more simmering, quiet emotions around ambition and family and restraint and shame and what you're good at and what you want to be good at. It's just a, it's a, it's a much more subtle stew, but a really interesting one, just as beautiful in the way that it's shot. I really love it. And the Bob Odenkirk performance at the center of it is every bit as masterful as Brian Cranston's. And people should not be thinking of this as some sad spin-off tag along. It's a really, really, really That's good show. Probably the most surprising thing about it is that when you start watching it, you sort of think, well, I'm watching this because of the coattail effect and because Breaking Bad was so great that how can I not see the prequel? And the fact is that it's now spun off into its own world that's just as interesting and complete. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, that's an esprit d'escalier from last year, because I think we talked about that show when it first premiered and we never really checked back in but it is so good it's so good uh i am endorsing this week an independent movie dana i'm curious whether you've seen it or julia you too um it's called martha <laughs> thanks steve <laughs> <laughs> nice tag along i'm especially acutely interested in whether you've seen it uh-huh. it's called martha uh, it's called martha marcy may marlene I have seen it. I've reviewed it, and I thought it was kind of overrated. <laughs> but uh, but it has some it has some fascinating things. Tell me what you loved about it. Okay. Well, I'll tell you why you thought it was overrated. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's very anticlimactic, and that's that's a, I think a huge problem with that film. And I won't give anything away, but it's set up so that it almost had to either end with a whimper or a kind of bang. And at the end of the day, I was grateful that it didn't end in a bang. I didn't want a bloodbath. Um, and didn't get one. What I'll tell you what I, here's what I liked about the movie. I, I thought that that movie was really about, so 
briefly, it's a movie about a woman who escapes, and this happens in the first virtually frame of the film, escapes from a cult in the Catskills and goes in search of uh, Haven with her sister from whom she's been estranged in the two years that she's been in the cult. And what I thought was great about the movie, a couple things. One is that the movie's really about the relationship between those two women, between the sisters, and talk about kind of an implied but unspoken backstory, how their early family life shaped each one of them, one to be a super overcompensating, aspirational bobo, and the other to be a kind of weak egoed in search of you know, a large solution to life um, victim, really. And reuniting the two of them after the cult has happened, you then get flashbacks to her life in the cult that weave in a kind of dream consciousness way into her present life with her sister. So you get this contrast of two kinds of quote-unquote homes, right? This woman who want, wants a perfect, beautiful lake house with a beautiful Hugh Dancy portrayed husband um, and this other house in which, you know, you're essentially a kind of a sex slave and a, you know, labor slave. And they're both perversions of what a healthy home should be. And I thought that that actually brought home beautifully. And the fact that you are going back and forth in this disorienting way between her attempt to make herself feel at home in both of these sort of radically homeless places. So the movie is called something like... <laughs> Mary Alice, <laughs> Moo Allen... There it is. It's called Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene. Check it out. All right. Thank you, Dana. Thank you so much. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern, Saab, is Lindsay Albrecht. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster on iTunes.com slash Panoply. And our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll, we'll see you soon. This is our last chance for Hey, this is Eric Malinsky, the host of the newest podcast on Panoply, Imaginary Worlds. Every other week, I explore different sci-fi fantasy genres, how they're created, and why we suspend our disbelief. You could start at the beginning with what makes a good origin story, whether you're applying for a job or starting out as a new superhero. You could also check out my five-part series on Star Wars, where I looked at how the evil empire became a metaphor in sports and politics, and whether Princess Leia's gold bikini is a feminist icon. Imaginary Worlds gives you the backstory behind pop culture stories and how they've changed the way we understand the real world. You can subscribe in iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.